I want you to think like you're watching a movie, and this is the opening scene. You see a crowded, noisy, Middle Eastern city, and the shot moves closer to a large structure, the temple, and the text in the lower left-hand corner says, Jerusalem, 5 BC. Hey, welcome to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. In this session, we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. It's really the opening scene for Luke's gospel. And the setting I just described sort of captures the feel of where we're at. Luke's gospel in verse 5, chapter 1, opens this way. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. The story here begins in Luke's gospel with the camera tight on the king of Judea, Herod the Great. And this locates us in history with an approximate date. Herod died in 4 BC. So we know this is before that. And we know that Herod died not too long after the birth of Jesus. So we're nearing the end of his life. And so 5 BC seems a fair estimate. And notice that Herod here is described as the king of Judea. Judea was a Roman political district for the southern portion of Israel, the portion that included the city of Jerusalem. What else do we know about Herod? Well, Herod was king over the Jewish people there in Judea on behalf of the Romans. He ruled from 37 BC to 4 BC at the time of his death. And if you read straight through the Bible, when you turn the page from the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, to the beginning of the New Testament, the first page of the book of Matthew, 400 years have passed, and a ton of history has happened. In that blank space between Malachi and Matthew, a ton has happened to the, the Jewish people. Check out the recording on that history in the intro to the Gospels for all the details to help you understand it. But for our purposes here, what you need to know is that at this point, the Romans now rule the Mediterranean world. And when Mark Antony and Cleopatra struggle for supremacy against Octavian, who becomes Caesar Augustus of Luke chapter 2, Herod supported Mark Antony. Well, when Mark Antony lost and Octavian becomes emperor, Caesar Augustus, um, Herod actually assured Octavian that he would be just as loyal to him as he was to Antony. And so Octavian appointed Herod as ruler over the Jews. And Herod was a cunning politician. He was a great builder and a cruel tyrant. In fact, Caesar Augustus once remarked that he'd rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Why? Well, because Herod had just enough Jewish blood in him and just enough Jewish sensibilities. And he wasn't really Jewish, but he pretended to be sort of. Uh, that that would at least keep him from killing pigs. But his son, uh, no, no sure thing there. He might just kill his own son. Uh, he was just that cruel of a person. And so as Herod approached the end of his life, this time period in history that Luke's gospel opens at, Herod was paranoid that they were all out to get him. And so he became increasingly tyrannical, increasingly cynical, increasingly brutal and suspicious. And that's where the story of the gospel of Jesus opens. At that point, with Herod, king of Judea, also mentioned here in verse 5, is a Jewish priest by the name of Zechariah. 
He belongs to the priestly division of Abijah. The priesthood in Jesus' day was divided into 24 groups. Each group provided priestly service one week, twice a year. We learn shortly that Zechariah is on duty, and he's married to a woman by the name of Elizabeth, who's also from the priestly line, the priestly tribe. She's connected to Aaron's line. That's the priestly line. Luke goes on in verse 6 and says, They were both righteous. So Zechariah and Elizabeth are both described as righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. In Jesus' day, the primary social unit in their culture was the family, and your ancestry was of critical importance. And so in that culture, childlessness was a cause not only of great concern, but also a cause of great dishonor or shame. And so here's Elizabeth. She is barren. And Zechariah, her husband, that means they have no family line. He has no heir. Not only that, in the biblical story, moments where this is mentioned, because we know it had to have happened way more than it's mentioned in the biblical story, but in these moments where this is mentioned in the biblical story, they always signal the beginning of a reversal of fortunes. God is about to do something. God's on the move. And we see this, for example, with Abraham and Sarah. When it mentions that Sarah was barren, that signified that God was about to intervene and do something. We saw it in the case with Hannah in the Old Testament, and God was about to act and do something. Well, the same is true here with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, she's barren, and not only is that like something that would be a cause of great concern and really a cause of shame for Elizabeth and her culture among her uh, circles, it also, to us as astute readers, we know something is up. What's about to happen? Well, here's what's about to happen. Verse 8 says, Now it happened that while he, that is Zechariah, was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division. And so, as I noted, the priesthood was divided into 24 divisions, and each division served for one week at a time, twice a year. So his division is on duty. Um, and so he is uh, in service in Jerusalem, which is not necessarily his hometown. In fact, we'll learn later in the story, it's not his hometown. He's traveled to Jerusalem for this week of service. So it happened that while he was performing his priestly service, uh, verse 9 says, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. So, Zechariah is on duty. Providentially, the lot will fall to him to be the one who goes into the temple to burn incense. Now, let's talk about the temple, and then we'll talk about burning incense. The temple in Jerusalem refers to the entire temple complex, which was a massive structure that dominated the, the Jerusalem skyline. 
uh, it had a huge open courtyard with porches around the perimeter. And that whole giant complex took up about 35 acres, massive, massive area. So 35 acres of the temple complex. Uh, but the, the uh, temple proper in the center of it all, that was the center of Jewish faith and Jewish life. Um, and so that complex was open to everybody. But in the center of it all was the temple proper, where sacrifices were made, where worship was carried out, where the holy place and the holy holies was. That was only open to Jews themselves. And so it's into the first room of the temple proper, what we usually call the holy place, that Zechariah is chosen to go for the incense offering. What's the burning of incense? Well, incense was offered twice daily in the holy place, that first room inside the temple proper. It was offered before the morning sacrifice, and it was offered after the evening sacrifice in late afternoon. And it served as a symbol of the prayers of the people ascending to God and was to be kept burning continually. There were so many priests that it was a rare privilege to get to actually carry out the incense offering. And it was chosen, as noted here, by lot. They would essentially have a way of drawing straws, casting lots, in order to, to see which specific priest got the privilege to go in and carry out the incense offering. On this occasion, providentially, the lot fell to Zacharias. And he's going to go into the holy place, and he's going to carry out uh, the burning of incense, as all the people are gathered in prayer outside uh, as part of the worship service for the morning or afternoon sacrifice. And in the midst of carrying out his duties, Zechariah is interrupted by an angel. Verse 11 says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And so, as Zechariah faces the altar of incense to carry out the incense offering, all of a sudden an angel appears to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. Just note that, not a whole lot to say there except that uh, this idea of he was troubled and fear gripped him. And this is the common reaction to seeing angels all throughout the Bible. And so we need to note that, that angels are not these cute, cherub-looking little beings in the Bible. They are glorious, usually almost mighty, powerful-looking beings that stir up sudden shock and surprise and even fear when they appear. Because it doesn't happen very often, and because angels are so full of might and power. And so the common reaction to angels in the Bible is fear. And Zechariah is gripped by fear here when this angel appears to him in the midst of the temple. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your petition has been heard. What's a petition? A petition is a prayer. So your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. So he has been praying, and probably he and Elizabeth both have been praying, asking God to give them a son. Specifically a son, because that means the line, the their lineage is going to carry forward. He will have an heir. And God, it says, has heard his prayer. 
um, and Elizabeth will become pregnant and will bear a son. And God even tells him, here's the name you're to give him. The name is going to be John. Um, and so God has heard his prayer and he is answering uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth's prayer uh, to a very personal problem, the longing for a son that would remove Elizabeth's shame, that would provide an heir for Zachariah. God is giving them a son uh, in response to their personal request, but it's going to be more than just a personal comfort. It's going to be more than just a personal answer to prayer. Their son is going to be a key part in God's plan of redemption. And that's the way this usually plays out when these things are noted throughout the Bible with, as we said, Abraham and Sarah, with Hannah in the Old Testament, that their child is not just an answer to their personal problem and a personal comfort to them. Their child is also a way of moving God's plans forward. So too will be the case here with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Verse 14 says, And you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even while he's in his mother's uh, womb. Now notice that. Uh, God is basically in, informing Zechariah that this child is going to be some sort of special child, some sort of answer not only to Zechariah's prayer, but also to God's purposes. He's not going to drink any uh, wine or liquor and be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's supposed to be a Nazarite from birth. That's what that would suggest to us, the Nazarite vow, where they weren't supposed to cut their hair and they weren't supposed to drink any fruit of the vine, any wine or any strong drink all the days of their life, or at least for the length of their vow. In his case, from his mother's womb. So it's going to be like Samson was in the Old Testament, where it was supposed to be for a lifelong vow. The angel keeps talking to Zechariah and, and describing what this child that they are going to have is going to do, what his function or role is in God's purposes. Verse 16, and he, this child that they're going to have, this little baby that he's going to name John, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, that is before the Lord their God, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and to turn the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. These words, this description of John's life and ministry, hearken back to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi had said that Elijah, that is one like Elijah, would come before the day of the Lord and he would effect a reconciliation and a preparation for the coming of the Lord. That's what's described here from the angel to Zechariah there in the temple. The angel's words thus communicate clearly that John is going to be a fulfillment of a long-awaited prophetic hope, that this baby that he's that this angel is promising to Zechariah is going to is going to fulfill words of anticipation and longing that have stirred the hearts of God's people for four centuries. All that history between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, all that angst and trouble and that anticipation and wondering when is God going to act and deliver his people, 
All of that is triggered by these words of the, the angel. So God has heard your prayers, Zechariah. You're going to have a son, and it's better than you even asked for. Well, Zechariah, there in the temple, all the people are praying outside. Zechariah is about to offer this incense offering that symbolizes the prayers ascending before God. And in the midst of this moment, and these angelic words told to him about a child that's going to come his way, so overwhelming, Zechariah just can't believe it. He can't believe it. And so he actually says to the angel in verse 18, how will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife has advanced in years. In other words, like we're old. We've been praying this way for a long time. We, we've been asking for God to do something. Now we're super old. How do I even know that this is for real? And the angel answered him and said to him, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. In other words, the, the angel, we know his name now, Gabriel, he says, uh, look at me, Zachariah, I'm Gabriel. I'm one of the two angels named in the Bible, right? Like Michael is the other one. Like I stand in God's very presence. I specifically have been sent to you, presumably by God. That's what that means. Do you really need any more than this, Zechariah? And because of that, um, the angel gives Zechariah a sign, though it's not quite what he was hoping for. Here's your sign, Zechariah. And behold, Gabriel the angel says to him, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So this conversations going on in the, the temple. Uh, Zachariah really can't even believe what's going on. I, I don't know exactly what was going through his head because it seems like the fear of the angel and all that should have been compelling and convincing enough. But however he interacted with the angel Gabriel, it was clear to Gabriel that Zachariah didn't really believe what was going on, didn't have confidence that God could do it. So he gives him a sign. And the sign is, you're not going to be able to speak until the baby is born. And so Zechariah is given a sign, and he's obviously delayed in the temple in the fulfilling of his offering during this moment because of this conversation with the angel and all that. Well, outside of the temple proper are all the people praying, gathered for the incense offering, for the hour of prayer, for the sacrifice. And where in the world is Zechariah? He isn't coming out of the temple. And so Luke goes on and tells us in verse 21 that the people were waiting for Zechariah. They're wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, but remained mute. So he comes out. They're all wondering what happened, why it took so long. He can't talk. He's making hand motions, trying to tell them, I saw an angel. I don't know how you communicate that with your hands, but that's what he's doing. And he's unable to speak just as the angel Gabriel had told him that was going to be the sign. Well, when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. So he's there in Jerusalem for his week of service. Who knows whether this happened on day one, day four. I'm not sure which day it happened, but he's got to stick around in Jerusalem. And now he's unable to talk for the rest of his week of service. And then he's got to go back home. No cell phones, right? 
no way of getting word to Elizabeth, his wife, uh, we would assume, unless he sent a runner back to his house. Hey, when I get home, I won't be able to talk. So his days are over, and he has to head back home because he didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived somewhere in the hill country of Judea. We learn that from Luke chapter 2 with Mary. So he lives in a small town in the rolling hills in central Judea. And those rolling hills are called the Shephelah. That's the technical name for them. It's really a series of small rolling hills between the coastal plains down by the Mediterranean and the, the central highlight, highlands where Jerusalem is. He lives in a town in those rolling hills. And so he goes back home. And verse 24, it says this, After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, but she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. And so Zechariah goes home to Elizabeth. She gets pregnant and she kind of keeps to herself for five months. And yet she's rejoicing before God because God has dealt graciously with her. He has removed her disgrace, that's, that shame, that dishonor that comes from, uh, in her case, being barren and having no kids in this honor and shame society. This is the reversal of fortunes that God has worked upon their behalf for their good. Notice she's rejoicing in what God has done for her good, but also for God's purposes. And so the gospel of Luke begins with this first opening scene of God being on the move to move the story forward and to bring in the promised forerunner who would prepare the way for the Messiah. And as we reflect on this story, we see an important biblical theme that is embodied in the specifics of this story. And that theme is this, that God answers our prayers for our good and for his glory. Notice the way Elizabeth responds. She thanks God. This is the way the Lord has dealt with me when he looked on me with favor. He's taken away my dishonor among people. God has answered this prayer for her good and for Zacharias's good. When Gabriel appears to Zacharias, the Lord has heard your petitions. He's acting on your behalf. So God answers our prayers for our good, but not just for our good, also for his glory. God is going to move the story forward. This baby is going to be someone who does uh, an important role in God's plan of salvation and redemption and renewal. In fact, another observation here is this, is that God acts in the real world to achieve his purposes. This snapshot is located in the real world of first century Israel. During the reign of Herod, during the priesthood of Zechariah, when he's fulfilling his task as a priest in Israel, this snapshot is located in the real world, the, the tangible physical world where, where there was real difficulties and real anxiety and real worries and a real sense of dishonor because of her barrenness in a real world where there were, where was a whole nation wondering if God was ever going to act on their behalf because they were under Roman occupation, uh, embodied in the person of Herod himself. It, it happened in the course of normal daily activities as Zechariah got a 
up in the morning, put on his priestly robes, goes to the temple for the hour of prayer. And in this moment, in his normal course of affairs, God steps in and God acts and he sends an angel, Gabriel, to him. It it happened to an actual older couple who had suffered the stigma and pain of infertility for years and years and years and had been praying and the heavens had seemed silent. Uh, And add to that, however, that it's been 400 years without prophetic activity in Israel, 400 years of waiting since the last prophet had spoken, Malachi, right? 400 years. And for some reason, God deemed this the time and this the couple, and he answered their prayer. And the prayers of how many others from those 400 years who were longing and waiting and watching for God to act. So, if God answers your prayer, rejoice like Elizabeth that he has acted for your good. But if you're part of the faithful during those 400 years of waiting, well, then wait on him in faith. God acts in his time, in his way, for our good, but also for his purposes and for his glory. Now, The main thing to take away here at the commentary level is this. This opening scene sets the stage and lets us know that God is on the move. The forerunner's birth is promised. The day we've all been waiting for is about to arrive. And that's how the Gospel of Luke begins.